Hi, I'm Porig Walsh, and you're very welcome to the podcast series All About This. Our mission is to explore the subject of disability in Ireland today. I'll be chatting with people with exceptional ability, their families, policymakers, and clinicians working in the field. We hope that these conversations will inform, inspire, and sometimes challenge current thinking on disability. We're all about this, and we're glad that you are too. Up to 25% of people with an intellectual disability will present with a behaviour of concern in their lifetime. In Ireland, our Health Act has mandated that PBS be used to support people whose behaviour presents as a concern. In this podcast, we talk to experts from all over the world about what positive behaviour support is, what are the skills necessary to implement it, and what a good service for somebody with behaviour of concern looks like. We hope you enjoy. All about this. Today on All About This, we're delighted to be joined by three people who have vast experiences in positive behaviour support from all over the world. We're here at the uh, IABA conference. IABA is the Institute for Applied Behaviour Analysis that was set up in 1981 by Tom Willis and Gary Lavinia. So we're really privileged to be joined by Gary Lavinia today. Along with him, we have Matthew Spicer all the way from Tasmania in Australia, who's got huge experience and is going to share with us the approaches and the supports for people whose behaviour presents as a challenge in Tasmania. And finally, we have Caroline Dench, who is the coordinator of the Callan Institute, who use positive behaviour support for people whose behaviours present as a concern and they're part of St. John of God. So welcome today, guys, and thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. So I suppose, first of all, what's your backstory for the intro that I just gave to you uh, in terms of your experiences and, and the work that you've done? Uh, well, uh, since 1981, we've provided a number of services. We started off providing just consultation to uh, group homes, families, schools, because they were dealing with uh, children, adolescents, and adults with challenging behavior, and uh, we were giving them, uh, uh, you know, providing assessments, developing plans, giving them training to implement those plans, and then we found that um, uh, some of the problems were due to the fact that the basic services were not sufficient, so we started to provide supported living services, supported employment services for adults, and uh, so we've been providing those services uh, for quite a number of years now. Caroline? Well, in Ireland, um, St. John of God made a very important decision in 1990. A group in St. John of God sat down and looked around the world of what was best practice, and they identified the IABA. And a relationship was started in 1991 to help, I suppose, St. John of God begin to understand how we could think about and support people with intellectual disability who found that they were using behaviours to communicate messages about unmet need. We were in a different position, I think, to the IABA. We actually didn't have a blank canvas and actually didn't take the initiative to start with a blank canvas. So in many ways, we were actually unpicking a little bit of our social unconscious in that our models of service for people with disability were not actually meeting basic service requirements. So in 1992, uh, Gary and Tom joined us in St. John of God and introduced us to the IABA model. This was a very critical turning point in Ireland. And I suppose we're here at the conference today to talk about our 25 years experience um, and our journey with um, the approach that the IABA shared with us in 1992. And Matthew? Well, you know, thank you. Well, I guess we uh, we were similar in our story that um, Australia had some influence from the IABA in terms of access and understanding about positive behaviour support. 
um, particularly across Victoria and, un, and other states like Tasmania, services were established for people whose behaviours presented a challenge and an impediment to their quality of life in their community. So it's looking at ways that they could be worked with that would seek to improve their quality of life. Um, we saw teams and services develop um, and importantly there'd been some early influence that was later strengthened critically around the time that Tasmania was looking to close the large institution that was there and see people return to community living. So it was an opportunity to start to embed positive behaviour support not just into the lives and support of people who could return to communities but also for the services that were being provided through, through government at the time. Uh, we were very fortunate to, to go through a lengthy training process, uh, train the train the program indeed with the model that IABA had developed and then looked to roll that out across the entire service sector within Tasmania from about 2003 to 2009. So the work that we, we've done has been kind of in that context um, but also more recently starting to consider how we can move the application of positive behaviour support from people with intellectual disability and the services that they receive to look more broadly to how that might apply to people um, in out-of-home care, for example, kids who are no longer living with their families. Okay, so we've got three very different stories from across the world around how positive behaviour support has evolved in your, in your lives. Each of these have described situations where services have changed. What does a good service for a person with intellectual disability look like? Well, well first of all, notice you're right, services vary dramatically across different countries and within countries, but we're all working from the same model. Um, and the model is based on a certain number of desired outcomes that we're looking for. First and foremost, to improve the quality of uh, life that uh, the person is experiencing. We want to have a good quality of life. Um, and we're concerned about behaviors only when those behaviors are a barrier to that person having a good quality of life. And in an effort to remove those barriers using our model, we have strategies for reducing its occurrence, that that is the occurrence of the behaviors of concern, but just as importantly, reducing the severity of those behaviors when they do occur. And um, uh, we're wanting to do that in a way that uh, lasts, not just creates short-term benefits, but long-term benefits. We want to do it in such a way that it generalizes to other settings, not just the, the service setting. Like if we're working in schools, we want the gains that we accomplish in schools to generalize back to the home and into the community. And we want to do that all in a way that's acceptable and agreeable to the person receiving the services. All of that without any negative side effects, of course. Can you tell us a little bit more about that model and, and how that can impact on good service for people? It, it can and it does. And one of the implications is... Um, that you may want to start without being concerned about the individual or behavior, providing basic services that are aimed at giving that person the life that they want and need. Um, and we call that person-centered planning. And what we found is if you start off with a person-centered plan and are supporting that person to have the kind of life that they want, problem behaviors often just disappear. You don't need a formal behavior plan because you're on that person's uh, agenda. Uh, on that person's page. And so that's, that's where, you know, we encourage agencies to pay attention to their basic services before we worry about a behavior plan. 
Just other examples of, of good service. Matthew, what, what kind of things are striking you as, as indicative of a really good service for somebody with, with disability? Well, I'd echo the, the, the sentiments that Gary's put forward there, that the focus really is, is on how do we connect with the person's context and with the culture that surrounds their lives in terms of not just the broader culture but their family and, and heritage. And how do we start to think about what a good life might be for them? Um, and so working to develop acceptable services to them that connect them back to important things. And for, for some people, that's about connecting back to country. For others, it's, it's, it's heritage or, or family activities. So really looking to pursue um, not, not just what is good about their past, but also what might be good in their future. So what's a meaningful way to be engaged in learning, to be engaged in their communities. And so to the extent that we can be successful in, in pursuing those kinds of activities for them, uh, we do see behaviour problems to drop away. And many, in many cases, we don't need to develop uh, really specific individualised uh, actions, but we can rely on the universality of good quality connections and presence in community to take, take effect. So those are some really critical uh, ways to understand what, what's good about services and PBS. And I guess another way we're starting to really learn a lot more about is that we also need to pay attention to what happens with our staff. And to the extent that we treat staff well and we support them well and we help them to grow and develop also, that the way they are engaged with by their leaders and within the culture of an organisation, that will make an enormous difference then to how they go forward and engage with the people that we are working to serve. I think um, in Ireland, I suppose we're a land of storytellers and what the multi-element behaviour support model of positive behaviour support really brings is an opportunity for the person to tell their story and for their family and loved ones to actually join them in telling their story. And not just their story, but also their dreams and their expectations, their hopes and fears as well, um, because that makes it very, very real. The, The piece then, I think, that we've worked very hard at is actually looking at the society in which an individual actually then lives. So our society, yes, it's, our, it's ourselves with our family, it's ourselves with our family, maybe in our work or in our schools, but it's also the local shopkeeper, it's the bus driver, it's uh, the boss um, where I'm working. And how we've actually looked at this in our organisation, and I suppose across Ireland, is how do we really integrate um, a real model of inclusion for people with disability so that we're not thinking about the congregate setting or the group home. We're actually thinking about John, Mary, Paul and Anne and who they are and how they're contributing um, in our society as well as in their work, their leisure, in their personal life and within their families. So that's really exciting because as we as we think about disability, we're 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 really growing towards not seeing difference as an obstacle, actually seeing difference as an opportunity. And I think that's very exciting. I'd like to expand on what Matthew said earlier too in terms of uh, getting staff around the agenda uh, that we're trying to do and that is we have a system within PBS for assuring consistency and staff buy-in on the uh, plans that we come up with and the services that we want to provide. Uh, the system we use is called the Periodic Service Review, but one way of looking at that system, the Periodic Service Review, is PBS for staff, even as we're using PBS for our students and clients. And so the same principles that guide our work with our clinical uh, clientele are used with us as staff to motivate us and to get us to do what we need to do as well. It sounds like something that's really helpful for people, that positive behaviour support is something that actually works. But I'm wondering what are the barriers to it actually 
being used with everybody and and where do you see the challenges in in its use well one of the challenges is that it requires specific knowledge i mean there are specific principles and procedures that people need to know and how to put them together and how to get them implemented consistently and so dissemination is a, a major uh, challenge and uh, we have two people here Caroline and Matthew who uh, illustrate how we have tried to approach that challenge and that is not just train people to do what needs to be done but to train people to train people um, and and so over the years while we've trained um, thousands and thousands and thousands of people ourselves we've created five training teams around the world that uh, mean we don't have to go back there. What about in Ireland, Caroline? What kind of barriers are there to PBS being used? I think um, something very exciting happened in Ireland in 2007, and it didn't just happen. It took years for it to actually occur, which was when our Health Act actually recognised positive behaviour support as the uh, recommended supports for people who found their lives distressed with behaviours of concern. This was very critical. It was the first time ever something had been legislated for and in the context of supporting somebody with a disability to have a meaningful life. What's interesting in Ireland, positive behaviour support um, and in particular the multi-element behaviour support model may not be as widely understood as we would wish it to be. So absolutely, Gary's right. We, um, we do a lot of training and we work um, quite hard actually to provide workshops and to build people's confidence and competence in this area. But we're still amazed with professionally qualified people um, interpretation of positive behaviour support because in actual fact uh, it may not actually be positive behaviour support that's actually been provided. So I think one of the challenges is to be very, very clear what positive behaviour support is and to ensure that if a family member or if an adult is actually thinking that this is the practice and these are the supports that I would like, that that is actually what they, what they receive. So I think we've a little bit of work to do to clarify um, people's understanding of actually what positive behaviour support is. Down under, Matthew, what kind of challenges are you facing in, in this work? Well, well, I guess I'd echo the same kind of concern. So knowing what PBS is and being uh, clear uh, where that might fit, I guess one of the really critical issues would be understanding that PBS, particularly the multi-element model that we might apply there, um, is inclusive of other types of therapies and approaches. And that's a really critical uh, thing to understand. It's not uh, something which is set to stand alone, but it but looks at what a person might need in their environment or in terms of the skills they require or how to kind of get in front of problems before they arise by relating to the person differently or indeed how to respond to crises. Those are critical things that um, we can see as including a whole range of different approaches. So, so knowing what it is, is is one thing. Knowing how to do it would certainly be another. But perhaps one of the, the biggest challenges for, for us in is recognising we are a human service industry. Uh, the tools in our workplaces are, are people. And perhaps one of the biggest issues to overcome is being able to see it as individual staff and teams and, and leaders in practice that recognising that some things are very difficult. And if we want to start a journey towards non-aversive practices, uh, we need to first learn to contain ourselves and to sit calmly with, with discomfort. And then to move from there through a place of understanding with empathy to seek uh, really to connect with another person, the person we serve, their point of view. And so to the extent I think we can manage to contain and feel safe enough to, to do that, uh, without reacting ourselves to the problem um, in, in a way that might be punitive or, or aversive. 
um, we, we, when we overcome that, we set ourselves up well to, to employ PBS as a technology. What do you see as the one main skill that a person who's working using PBS should have, or one, I suppose, approach that they should have? I'm going to answer you in two ways. One, one is to understand why the person is acting the way they do from their point of view, uh, because invariably it's a legitimate need that they have that they're trying to address through their behavior. Two is the full answer to your question is that there are many, many skills you need to have to implement a PBS plan and to develop and implement a PBS plan. When we introduce PBS to a novel audience, it takes us four days just to describe the principles and procedures. There's not just one, and that doesn't even give them competence to use those principles and procedures. That's just giving them awareness of what those principles and procedures are. And then further training is needed if, they, if you really want them to have the skills. I mean, Gary took the number one, which really is uh, the most important is find the message. And I suppose in Callan Institute, we've actually really tried to coin that phrase uh, we've developed maybe a little mouse. So um, to give that image of take your time, find the message, go slowly and softly. And that has really changed environments and families because when faced with distress or when faced with a difficult situation, we prompt and I suppose we support people to say, Mebby's on your shoulder. He's trying to find the message. You work with them and see if you can find the message as well. So that's quite critical. And as Gary says, the work isn't easy. It absolutely isn't easy uh, to love somebody who's hurting you, to actually support a staff team who are actually maybe a little bit fearful and feeling overwhelmed. This isn't easy work at all. And what the model does is it gives us a framework to think and talk together and not to actually allow some of the more negative emotions that can sometimes appear, like shame and guilt and maybe embarrassment or not feeling confident are able to do this, to actually a shared journey of how do we help this person and their needs be met in a way that don't cause anybody actually distress. So when we think about what we're doing, we are interested in everybody's emotional well-being. We do want uh, mums and dads to be able to sleep at night. Uh, we want the people we support not to wake up with maybe pains in their tummy because they're worried about the day ahead. And the same with our team. So I think that that ability to actually converse and talk to each other in a way that isn't um, constructed that this is your fault, that you're to blame, but more in a way of let maybe help you find the message because he's on your shoulder. And that's what PBS and the multi-element model bring. Well, I guess for me, you know, starting to think about using PBS in traditional disability services, um, but also looking at how we apply PBS to people who've experienced trauma, adversity and, and chronic stress in their lives, where that may be the source for most of their difficulties. Um, I'd suggest the first thing for us is really to think about how we can make people safe. And when we think safety, we need to be considering physical safety um, with a range of environmental and non-aversive reactive strategies we might deploy, but also relational safety. How do we connect with the individuals in front of us, whether they be the person themselves, their family, the staff surrounding them? And so that's a critical part of what, and indeed that's been touched on and described by, by Gary and, and by Caroline. So for me, that, that's the first point. The next is then to make sure you've got skillful people that can deploy a whole range of strategies, perhaps coming from a universal perspective 
perspective to start with, but then also through a fuller functional assessment, understanding from the person's point of view the meaning of their behaviour and looking to deploy a range of strategies to not only deal with risk and crises in terms of episodic severity, but also in terms of improving quality of life and decreasing problems across time. In terms of the journey that you have come on in in each of your individual settings, it sounds like that that this is evolving all the time and that there are more steps to come in this. What do you see as the next step for positive behaviour support in your setting? Go back, start with you, Matthew, this time. Thank you. Um, I guess one of the critical things for me is really getting an, an understanding that there's a lot of misunderstanding of what PBS might be um, amongst practitioners in the field. So I think there's a, a part of the, the steps going forward is to look at how we connect and really disseminate a message about what PBS is and then how that can fit very neatly with um, other um, areas of practice. And foremost in my mind at the moment is it's how it sits with um, trauma-informed practice as, as an area. And, and so what I see a lot of is that this... Um, is an enormous space for overlap in concepts and terms and practices Um, and there are things that people don't realize are the same because they're using different language Um, and so seeing what is the same and what can be added to PBS from trauma-informed practice and similarly in reverse in what ways uh, PBS might enhance trauma-informed practice. I think that's a kind of really important area of, of growth and looking at how we can connect with the meaning of people's experience and then see how we can help them to learn, to grow and and communicate better to improve their quality of life. I'm really excited about educational initiatives for our teachers, for our nursery schools, our early childhood services. Um, I think it's an area that has maybe gone a little bit neglected because if we can support our little people, so our children, to actually grow up with some of the supports that positive behaviour support can offer in the context of uh, teaching good communication skills, having good emotional literacy, uh, feeling connected and loved, not only obviously within their families, but within their school system, within their neighbourhood. And then thinking about into adulthood, will that transition be much more smooth because the person's going to be coming into it much more confident Uh, much more able to articulate vision and dream. So I'd be very excited about us really thinking about embedding this in with parenting and with our children's supports and services. What I think we're ready for is to do things at a state level or national level, whether we're talking about schools or group homes or other services. And funding agencies should be requiring uh, outcome standards and process standards for agencies that want funding from them. And those process and outcome standards should embrace the principles and procedures of positive behavior support. I'm not aware of any state or country that has adopted that at that level of uh, concern. And, and I think that's what we're ready for. I, th- I think that's what we're ready for, and I'm hoping to accomplish that in California. And I'd like to see it happen here in Ireland and in Tasmania as well. I suppose finally the uh, lasting vision that you have for positive behaviour support. So I could tell lots and lots of stories but actually they're the individual stories so what MEBS will actually do is enable that person's individual story to be told. There's lots of different ways to do that but usually what I find is talking, listening and spending time with the person are the key ingredients to actually understanding what their needs are and how their life can be distress-free. Wow. Um, 
again, you know, one of the things that really resonates for me is that um, we need to start from a place of understanding and then move forward and trust that this is a, a process. And often the best work we do at the start becomes enriched by our ongoing relationships and the knowledge we gain along the way. Um, for me, this is characteristic of a, a case of a man I did some work with with some other colleagues as well um, who came out of an institutional setting and was incredibly fearful and had a series of difficult behaviours related to aggression, um, which could be understood as a way of making sure that he was um, safe himself. And so a big part of the intervention, um, you know, focused on how to firstly make him physically safe, how to deal with his health needs, um, but also how we could wrap a team of, of staff around him. And so for me, I come back to that relational aspect, um, having people who could be with him to tolerate his aggression, um, but always respond in a way that... Um, modelled safety and, and calm and something which was different indeed to what had been the circumstances that had given rise to his problem behaviour in the first place. And so, the, you know, to this extent, we put a lot of effort into looking at staff well-being and staff communication skills um, to make sure they were able to use those small incidental opportunities every time they kind of connected, engage with him to model how to be different. And so there's a vicarious learning taking place. There was one strategy um, we, we had employed. Another looking very clearly too to teach him alternative means of communications around fear and how to adopt strategies that would help him to regulate, like walking, um, broader ecological strategies in place where he was living in a rural community and introduced through his staff who lived also in that community to broader members of um, to get him some engagement and connection to, to the people around him as well, in the first instance to sort of tolerate some of his, his behaviour, but secondly to um, endear him to the community through those staff and their relationships so that over time he was invited um, because people were interested in him to community dances. and So leveraging off, I guess, all of those aspects, some formal teaching around communication, but also um, looking at the importance of connection to people and, and to community is, is a powerful way to move forward. Matthew Spicer, Caroline Dench and Gary Lavinia, thank you very much for joining us on All About This. We're All About This! And that's it for this episode of All About This. Remember, you can get in touch and continue the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter and find out more on allaboutthis.com. Thanks to our producer, Amy O'Dwyer at Trees Road Productions. Until next time, thanks for listening.